Welcome to our podcast, Bad, It's All About Crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir. And each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad, All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. Welcome to Bad, All About Crime. My name is Andy Muir and joining me later in the episode to talk about today's books will be Suzanne Leal, Dr. Sue Turnbull and Catherine Dupalou-Menager. So you've probably listened to a couple of episodes already, so you know the drill. Today we're talking about Peter Temple. Peter Temple is an Australian crime author without peer winning five different Ned Kelly Crime Awards. In 2007, he was the first Australian to win the English Crime Writers Association's Gold Dagger for his novel The Broken Shore. This was followed up by winning the 2010 Miles Franklin Award for the crime novel Truth. Now, normally a podcast will bring you the author to talk about their work, but sadly Peter left us in 2018 after a short battle with cancer. So today we're instead joined by Michael Haywood, CEO and publisher at Text Publishing, to talk all things Peter Temple and the book The Red Hand, a collection of Peter Temple's writings that came out at the start of the pandemic. Now, for those of you listening who might be a little confused at this point, Michael, let's start with a quick explainer of who you are and why you're not Peter Temple. Well, the second part first, because that would be uh, impossible. Um, um, there was no one, I, I, I never met anyone like Peter. He was he was extraordinary. But I have, I'm otherwise unemployable. I, I have been forever the, the publisher at Text, which is now getting up to 30 years old. And uh, it's it more or less the only job I've I've ever had. And, um, you know, we started publishing uh, at Text in the uh, in the early 1990s, and in fact, the first novel that we published was um, Shane Maloney's Stiff. So, um, crime was always part of what we wanted to do. We felt really strongly at that time. You know, you would walk into an airport bookstore, and there'd be a wall of crime novels, and they were all kind of second-grade British um, novels. And the mark of them, the Australians seem to, to Australians seem to be voracious readers of crime, but to have little uh, access to their own market. And um, there were, very, I mean, historically there'd been a handful of best-selling crime writers, and there'd been some remarkably good crime writers like Arthur Upfield and so on. Yeah. Uh, but but very few, and and we were an export market for the for the British. And so we started to think about how how we could publish crime, and we just ma- made a couple of decisions i suppose one was that um if these if australians were going to read crap they were happy to read crap from elsewhere but if they were going <laughs> to read really good crime um it had to be uh local it had to be homegrown that mm. the bar was higher for australian crime writers so we had to be able to 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 leap that bar and also we decided that we wanted to publish crime novels that um, might not fit the narrow mould that weren't um, uh, genre novels in in the in the you know very strictly conceived that we didn't want to publish cookie cutter novels we wanted to publish writers who wrote crime if you see what I mean yeah. and so when uh, Shane Maloney Stiff came along because Murray Whelan couldn't really investigate his way out of a wet paper bag this was perfect for us and 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 Shane's a very stylish and extremely funny writer. And, you know, we felt that this was a really good place to start. And Peter began publishing uh, not with us um, but with but with HarperCollins, I think it was initially, and then he went to Transworld right. uh, at around the same time in the late 90s. 
and he brought out a novel called Bad Debts, uh, which is an extraordinary debut. It's the first time that Jack Irish appears. Uh, Peter was then living in, in Ballarat, but he was, um, uh, he was already then something of a, of a legendary figure in, in Melbourne crime writing circles. And so we read him and, and followed him and, um, continued, uh, bit by bit to, to build our crime list. Uh, and I've always been, um, uh, crazy about finding old books and bringing them back into print. And, um, it was probably around that time, late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, I reread, um, Kenneth Cook's Wake in Fright, right. which I hadn't read since I was a schoolboy and was completely bowled over by it, um, all over again. Uh, and found out that the rights were free and, and we acquired the rights and began to plan to bring that book back into print. And one of the things we did habitually, and it's become uh, a staple of the text classics, is to commission a new introduction every time we bring uh, an old book back from, from the dead. And so I approached Peter uh, and asked him whether he would introduce Wake in Fright for us. Yeah. And I think we both knew that um, the, I was testing the waters. You know, could we possibly uh, work together? Might he like to be published by text one day? None of this was said. He wrote the introduction. He did it very well. We republished the book, and and then Peter called me up one day and said, "Michael, if the if if it were possible, would you like to be my publisher?" And I said, "I thought you'd never ask." Um, and so um, from from that point, we we worked together. And the first book we did together was, in fact, the last Jack Irish novel to be published, which was White Dog, and that would have come out around 2004. And um, and that's where and we slowly acquired the rights in his previous novels. There were four previous novels. His writing pattern was, um, which he only varied at the end at the end of his career, was he would write a Jack Irish novel and then he would write a standalone. Then he'd go back to Jack. Jack. Then he'd do another standalone. So. Um, uh, there were, there were, I think, uh, four or five, Andy, four or five previously published novels, mm -hmm. including the, um, the anomalous book, which is In the Evil Day, the international thriller that he wrote, uh, and, uh, and then continued to publish him. Uh, White, White Dog was hard work. You know, Peter Sales were, were way below where they should be. And, um, when you publish a book, the booksellers, of course, look at how many copies your previous book sold, and it was hard yards to get attention for White Dog. But we rejacketed the the books, and we probably did have rights in some previous books by then. But I'd done a multi book deal with Peter, and he said, "I've got a new novel coming," and uh, and he sent sent us the Broken Shore, and that mm. was just that was such a highlight. That was you know the, um, such an extraordinary moment when we read that book. And we, and we realized that this was an extraordinary book. It happened to be a crime novel, but this was a great contemporary Australian crime novel. And that was terribly exciting because we had to reinvent how to publish him. We had to, we had to think, well, we're not going to publish this novel as a crime novel and we want to give it a literary jacket. Uh, and, and we want to get people reading Peter Temple who we know would love him, but have never ever read him. Yeah. I remember there was really protracted. Um, Peter was a, a, a great uh, email correspondent. He was very opposed with the jacket approaches that we wanted to take and um, and, arg and argued fiercely against the, the jacket that Chong Wing Ho, um, our, our design director, uh, had, to, had put together, which very much was the jacket of a literary novel. 
But finally he gave way and um, and it was a while after the book was published and I got an email from Peter which said, you might want to tell Chong that he was right <laughs> after all. It's actually, it's quite interesting because, um, you know, we're here sort of talking today about the red hand and in that you have some of his email exchanges which are incredibly entertaining as well as um, he's quite, um, well, maybe a little grumpy at, at times. Um when you're kind of putting together a collection like this, like how do you kind of go about selecting material? Because it sort of seems like there's so much that you could have chosen. Well, Peter's death was a tremendous shock. You know, he was he was 71, um, and mind you, I I think he had st- he had stopped writing really. I mean, he was still writing, but but I think he'd given up believing that he would do a new novel. Perhaps I'm wrong about that. He had always wanted to write the third novel in what would be the Broken Shore Truth trilogy and yeah. he had a few goes at that and, and we hoped that um, that he would finish it. And I knew that um, uh, he had an unfinished Jack Irish novel in his, in his drawer yeah. and I'd read um, quite a lot of short fiction over the years and I'd read um, the amazing, splendid reviews that he'd done over many years for Jason Steger as the literary editor of The Age. And mm-hmm. Peter was fascinated by history. He was an extraordinarily good reviewer, both of crime fiction and, and of history. So I knew that the material was there. And of course, because I'm a book publisher, I hope that, you know, when I was talking to, uh, Anita, uh, his partner, that, um, she would tell me there was, you know, a, a manuscript under the bed, but, but there wasn't. Yeah, there wasn't a manuscript under the bed, but there was. Um, there were twenty thousand words of Jack Irish, and so we led the Red Hand with them. And um, if you read the book, you'll see that they're the equal of of any of the of of the Jack Irish novels. He just didn't finish the book, but uh, and so it was with a real mixture of joy and sadness that you know we prepared that big chunk of Jack Irish. For publication, and and then mm. I just wanted to give full range to all of the different kinds of writing that he did. There's a screenplay in there, you know. There are musings about the meaning of of living in Australia and becoming an Australian. I think that the um the thing that I've got the most joy out of reading this and sort of going back and looking at his other novels in in preparation for this this podcast was his criticism. I, I just found it so entertaining, and you kind of you know, you forget that most writers in Australia are doing multiple things to, to pay the bills. And um, his criticism is quite singular. Like he's he's not afraid to call call it as he sees it, which we don't see much now. He started late. He was trained as a journalist in South Africa. When he came to Australia, he taught journalism uh, and quickly developed a legendary rep- reputation as a, as a ferocious um, uh, corrector of, of the, um, blemishes of his students. So he knew what it was to mm. think analytically and he knew what it was to, uh, write something that was about the world that, that re- reflected mm. on, on what was happening now, what, what was, what was alive and discussable and, co- and controversial now. So he was very well equipped to, um, to do that kind of discursive writing and, and, and obviously to do, to do book reviewing, but he also brought, I think, all of his training as a journalist and his interests as a journalist uh, to the writing of fiction. And he he loved writing. Um, 
you know, the, 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 a Peter Temple novel will always have corrupt politicians in it and, and it will have some property developers in it who are on the take and there'll be some other people with their, with their snout in the public trough or whatever. Somewhat terrifyingly, uh, there were drafts. I didn't see many of them, but he would write the novels with the, actual names of the politicians and, and, and public figures that he was thinking about doing. Peter, we might need to change those at some point before we publish the book. It might be a little risky. <laughs> <laughs> so, so does that mean that he actually talked to you about, you know, this is the story I'm talking about, I'm thinking of doing, you know, did he kind of discuss the, what he was planning with, say, the Jack Irish absolutely, novel? Absolutely not. There was to be no discussion of, of, any, of any book before, uh, bef- before we we were allowed to read it, and and he uh, pointedly refused to even give a hint that there might be a manuscript on on the way. And I remember I forget which novel it was, but I, I did talk about it in the in the Red Hand, you know, where Peter said, "Look, I think I might have something for you." Uh, and of course, yeah. having um, got his um, uh, publisher on his knees, he then you know promptly the next day emailed me with an email that was headed uh, "False Dawn." Mm. Um, he enjoyed that. <laughs> I remember when he sent. <laughs> when he sent uh, Truth, he said, look, I've got something, um, but there's only really about 20,000 words for you to read. Do you want to read them? I said, that's excellent. I'd love to read them. I remember we were, it was summer or whatever. I was in a holiday house in, in Apollo Bay, and he sent me these 20,000 words, and I read them straight away and called him or emailed him, I can't remember, and said, they're absolutely wonderful. It's as writing as equal of anything that, of yours that I've ever read, when do you think you'll have the rest? He said, I might have it here, Michael. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, was, I, I had no, no uh, idea at the time, but in fact I was being given a little test about whether I was worthy to read the rest of the book, and right. I passed the test, thank God. So he sent the, he sent the rest <laughs> of truth. <laughs> it, it's sort of just to sort of go back a little bit where you were sort of talking about him training as a journalist I suspect that's probably where a lot of his sort of power of observation came from because the details that he brings to his prose are really quite quite something and they're so infused with Melbourne. He's such a Melbourne writer that I think only an outsider could really tackle that those things. Yeah, I think that's one of the miraculous things, one of the mysteries really about, about Peter's career as a, as a novelist because, you know, he was um, – he was a formed writer. I mean, mind you, he hadn't published a novel, but he had been writing fiction before he came to Australia. Yeah. Uh, and he was an outsider. He knew nothing about Australia. You know, he'd come from South Africa. He and Anita had spent a couple of years in Germany uh, before they uh, came to Sydney and then they came down to to Melbourne. Uh, but there was something about Australia, something to do with our irreverence, our, our, our informality, the fact that parts of our society for him as a South African must have been legible, but there were other parts that uh, were, must have seemed extremely mysterious. And he was a good student. So he's he studied us. And in particular, he studied the way that we speak. Mm. And and in the in the novels, his his pathway into character and in, and into action, is via his ear, and he's got an incomparable ear for for dialogue, but also for 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 Australian speech. There's a thing in the in the Red Hand where um, he quotes. But he he had to give a, a Miles Franklin speech after he won the Miles Franklin, something that he did, of course, brilliantly, but felt uh, completely uh, ill-equipped to do. 
And he quoted at the end of this speech from hearing um, two tradies uh, in a pub in Ballarat. And this is a classic, classic bit of temple dialogue. Two tradies in the Golf House Hotel in Ballarat. What'd she say? Nothing. What did you say? Ah, oh, you know. Yeah? Yeah. Bloody hell. <laughs> Uh, and and Peter loved he loved honing speech down to its essential elements, and mm. he loved. I think partly because he probably because he heard he heard the Australian accent as a foreign accent. He was able to subdivide it into its sounds. I mean, it's a little bit like you know. I don't think John Clark, who was also a foreigner, he was a New Zealander, yeah. would have invented farnarkling back in the nineteen eighties had he had Australian rules not existed as this as this um, manic incomprehensible sport with you know completely its own language so peter really you know he i think being an outsider was a tremendous advantage for him but then he knew more about australia than we did you know he 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 he, he called himself a born again australian he loved absolutely loved australia he and anita you know felt they had found absolutely the right place he's quite evangelical in terms of his Australianness, yeah, he, it was. I suppose you know, Australia uh, gave him an op- an opportunity. Um, uh, the South Africa that he and Anita left was, you know, in the grips of apartheid. It it, it was uh, a ferocious place to be, uh, and I also think, I think if you wanted for the kind of fiction that he wanted to write. Australia was a much better place to be. I don't. I don't think that he could have stayed in South Africa without becoming a political writer. But the mm. politics of his novels, mind you, he writes about race a lot. All a lot of his books have have themes of racial injustice in them. Um, but it's Australia gave him the the freedom to explore the fiction that he wanted to write, and what that turned out to be was. Was crime fiction, but with a with a poet's ear and and, and an extraordinary sort of literary apprehension for um, for what it, for what literary effect could do. You know, Peter Peter will take in the middle of a novel there'll be a scene that's somehow got apparently nothing to do with the plot, but is totally germane to to character or 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 where he wants the novel to take us. And that's why you know he got better. I mean, that mm. very it's very rare for writers. Um, to continue to get better, um, writers often reach a point. It's you know somewhere somewhere after a certain number of novels, and then they might stay really good. But Peter got better and yeah. better and better. In some ways, I think it's why you know there were no novels after Truth because he'd set the bar so high at that point. Uh, where was he going to go f- from here? But when you get to the Broken Shore and Truth, especially, you've you've got. You've got he by then had seven or eight novels behind him. He knew how to write a novel, but he also knew really, really what he wanted to say and what he wanted to use the form of the crime novel to say. Yeah. Yeah, he's quite um he's been um quoted a few times as saying that with truth in particular, he was looking at what he could leave out and how much you know, how little you needed to tell a story. And that kind of experimentation, which is quite American as well, and his sort of approach. But the, he's also there's an incredible humanity through his his writing as well. There is um, the leaving out. I mean, by the time we got to truth, you know, we would read two or three pages. And I'd 
Peter, we've got absolutely got no idea what's going on in the pages <laughs> at all. He said, I've left out everything. You've just got the essentials there. Don't worry, you'll work it out, you know. So, so that was part of it, was just to hone and hone and cut away and cut away and cut away and make the reader really concentrate because you might miss something and you had to read between the lines. So that was, that was one part of it. The humanity, I think, is, is completely true. So on the one hand, it, it exists in a more recognizable form in, um, in the Jack Irish novels. Um, partly through the figure of Jack Irish himself. You know, Peter was really interested in wounded men and, and so Jack mm. Irish is a deeply wounded man and, you know, because of his, because of his job, he's lost his wife to a violent crime. You know, he's, he's been down and out. He's, he's tried to drink himself into oblivion. He's come back. He's a person who's carrying his wounds, but he wants to do something good in the world. And then, um, in the Jack Irish novels, the humanity comes through with the humour, with the old blokes propped up in the pub talking about the footy, um, the humour that the in the flirtatious scenes, yeah. uh, the the humour um, between between Jack and whoever it is that might be trying to race him off or or he's trying to race off, the humour in in a way. I mean, if you just even if you take the opening page of of Bad Debts, <laughs> which. Jack's going to sort someone out who needs to be sorted out. And you don't know whether to feel sorry for this poor bugger or, or whether actually he's going to deserve everything that Jack's ab- about to give him. <laughs> and then I think with The Broken Shore and and with Truth, Peter got really interested in what happens in, in, in police culture. He was very interested in um, groups groups of men um, uh, all, all with a single goal. Um, they want to do, they want to do good and they're in a, they're in a really toxic environment. They're, they're where bad things happen. Right. And he was really interested in, um, in men who, who, who expect to be wounded in life and carry their wounds with them, as it were, onto the, the battlefield of, of their jobs. Yeah. yeah. And it, like he doesn't, and it, that's something really struck me with the police characters in particular, like, all through his his novels is that they're not put on pedestals, they're not there. They're just doing a job and doing it really well and to the best that they can. Which it's um it's quite again it's, it's a really unique sort of well. And some of them work. are bad, you know. They're not all yes, good, they're yeah. not all good guys. Um and and you know there's there's workplace politics and and all the rest of it. I remember hearing Peter at a writers festival in the days when he did writers festivals because he hated doing them. And someone said, you, you must have done so much research to understand what police culture is like. And Peter said, no, I'm a writer. I made it up, you know. <laughs> um, and, of course, that's only partly true. I mean, he devoured, he read everything. So, yeah. and, and he didn't write about anything that he didn't know about. Yeah. But, but he certainly didn't write the kinds of novels where he went out and did all of his homework that he had to do on the international drug trade or whatever. You know, he, he worked out what the story was going to be. Uh, and then, and then he, um, you know, worked out really via what the novels all have is, is a central character. So it's Jack Irish or it's Cashin in the, in, in, in the Broken Shore or it's Villani. And, and then the plot flowers out from this central figure who's going to carry a lot of the kind of metaphorical weight of what it is that he wants to get at, you know. I mean, look, I, I could really talk to you for ages about this about this topic, but the, probably going to have to sort of wrap it up quite 
quite soon. But the sort of the question I um, I did want to ask was, out of all of um, Peter's characters, do you think there was one that was closest to him? Which is something that authors are often asked, uh, or or readers assume of the author. And um, I was kind of wondering whether you had a, a view on that one. If you asked Temple that question, he would have refused to answer it for sure. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. There is, you can draw a line from Jack Irish to Cashin to Villani, but uh, as the novels went on, they got they got darker. They, yeah. they, he, the whole thing about a crime novel is uh, the reason we love reading them is because there's a beginning and a middle and an end, and at the end, most of the time, there's some kind of redemptive thing going on. The good, the right. goodies have won, and the baddies have gotten their comeuppance. And I think as Peter's novel, as he as he kept writing, he got less and less interested in that. Um, but in the the Jack Irish novels and and the Broken Shore, what they combine is um, uh, this sense of 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 life sinks the boot in life sinks the boot in and you've got to pick yourself up and you've got to keep going and you've got to have the dignity of of keeping a sense of humor and a sense of irony and um and you've got to want to uh somehow somehow make things better and i think by the time you get to truth he's less interested in that right. i mean probably yeah. the more interesting question to think about now is you know with both jack irish and with cashin you know, Peter was, um, he could be a very dark character um, uh, and, you know, when Peter was unhappy about something, he never left left you wondering about that. You always found out about it pretty quickly. But he could, he could also be the most entertaining person you could ever want to be with. A lot of writers are much duller than their books. You know, writers put their best selves into yeah. their books. They put their private secret selves into their books and their books are, are, are wonderfully entertaining or written or whatever, but the writers themselves can be can be quite tedious company. Peter was the opposite of that. P- Peter was one of those writers. You know, Oscar Wilde was like this. There have been writers who have been great talkers and great conversationalists um, and, who, and whose conversation is is at least as entertaining as their books. And that's what Peter was like. And so when I think about Peter like that and then you think about Jack Irish or about Cashin, he certainly put those, both of those aspects of himself in, into his novels. I mean, we used to, you know, we were, and Anita's still part of a walking group. We go walking every year and Peter used to come, though he didn't walk anywhere at all. And I have, we would sit around the table at night drinking and talking and laughing and, and it would just go for hours and hours. And everybody was, I mean, we were just doubled up with, with, with laughter. And he was extraordinary like that. Ab- absolutely extraordinary. Such a vastly entertaining person. Uh, and then at the same time, you know, Peter could <laughs> make it clear that you hadn't met the, um, uh, the expectations that he'd reserved for what you might be able to do. So oh, there's some, uh, some wonderful memories there of, uh, of Peter Temple. Michael, thank you very much for, for joining us. It's sort of, um, it's been fantastic to, to chat and talk about all things Peter and, um, and his work. Um, just the, Final question I had for you was, as you know, we also have a book club attached with this podcast. And um, do you have any suggestion for any of the readers out there that 
haven't read at Peter Temple before, which one they should start with? I, so I think it's a choice. I, I think that you can start at the start with with Bad Debts, which is the first Jack Irish novel. Uh, there was no apprentice period for Peter as a novelist, you know. Um, Jack Irish is a, is a fully formed, one, wonderful book, so there's absolutely no reason not to start there. Then or you could start... Um, and then work your way through the Jack Irish novels. Or you could start with The Broken Shore, which was the novel that made him famous and became an international bestseller and, and you know, was why he was first Australian to win the, the gold dagger in the UK and all the rest of it. Because that's just, and that is one of the most extraordinary Australian novels of the last few decades. And, um, you, 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 you're reading, you're reading a great book. But if you love that book, you could then go backwards and forwards. You could go on to truth or you could go back to Jack Irish. Um, but the wonderful thing about recommending any novel by Peter Temple is hard to imagine uh, a disappointed reader. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much again for your time, Michael. And, and yes, hopefully we'll, we'll get to talk again soon. I hope so. Look forward to it. All right. So we've got the team to discuss Peter Temple. Um, so the first question I had to everyone was um, – what was does anyone remember our, their first Peter Temple novel? Yep, <laughs> it was Bad Debts. Reviewed it at that time. I was actually a judge of the Ned Kelly Awards, and uh, we just loved that book. So it it just was so fresh. Mm. Um, we'd read Stiff, but here was something that had that same laconic quality, but a little more ironic, a little less going for the obvious joke. Now, you know, Stiff is Shane Maloney. Stiff was Shane Maloney. Um, you know, Michael was was yeah. um, was talking about having published Shane Maloney first and looking for another kind of good Australian voice in that sphere. And then Temple came along, and um, Maloney was really, um, I think, in some ways, a comic writer. And I don't think Temple was ever that, but the humour was just so strong and so vivid. And also that opening scene where he, he's talking about knocking on the front door of Edward Dollery. Um, and they're somewhere west of Melbourne in a cow pasture where he says, you can smell the fresh mortgages in the morning. <laughs> and I just thought that was so brilliant and so clever and such an extraordinary sense of place. And I actually ended up writing about Australian sense of place and using that temple opening as a way of saying, here's somebody who's really got it. Look, I'm a novice to this. I think had we been at a dinner party, I wouldn't admit that. And I'd say, yes, I've uh, <laughs> I've read heaps. Peter Temple, yeah, heaps. But um, as it happens, I haven't. So for me, the first book has been The Broken Shore. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this has really been a baptism by fire for me in, in Peter Temple. What I think he does particularly well his prose is sparse, as Michael was saying. So he writes like the writer's writer, but he has the plot of the crime writer. And I'm always, when I talk to my husband, when I've got another brilliant idea for the next novel, he's like, yeah, but where's the plot? It's great to be able to write well. It's good to have interesting characters, but where's the plot? And I think that Perhaps what makes Peter Temple so so loved is that he gets all that. He gets the rounded characters. He gets the this prose, which well, is not too much. It's not overdone. The dialogues, he's got the right ear for dialogue and stuff happens. Can I just say, though, that um, I had the pleasure of, of interviewing um, him on at writers' festivals that he hated. And the other thing he hated was plotting. 
he actually said that the plot was the last thing on his mind when he was writing um, a crime novel and he struggled with them. And um, and really, he just wanted to get, you know, his characters moving from point A to point B. But plotting was not his thing. So plot through character then, really, rather than plot followed by character. I can't remember the first one I read and I have a feeling I listened to it on tape. So this is a few years ago. And Villani was in it. And it starts with the body of a dead woman being discovered in a building in Melbourne. Do you know which one that is? Uh, Truth. Truth. Is it Villani? Yeah. Yeah. And I just thought this is extraordinary because apart from anything else, the sadness of of the of the the police, if it was Villani, because his daughter had disappeared as well. And I'd read hard boiled stuff and you know, in the cool or the the the, the disaffected but this was sad yeah it was real profound humanity and i just thought it was extraordinary and that opening on where they're going over the westgate bridge and there's the memory of the the collapse of the west bridge bridge and that this that again that dark humor because there's somebody in it whose father was killed and he was on the dunny at the time and it goes it was actually as the bridge collapsed the dunny went down too and it is there's this dreadful black humor where you're kind of laughing and feeling that you shouldn't at the same time it needs yeah. that ambivalence about his humor very australian actually i mean i'd only been living here for a few years and I, I, a lot of the stuff i found went a bit was just a bit for me very not hard to understand i mean i got what it meant but whether i got what it symbolized or signified in a broader sense That's i don't think really i did interesting point because as an outsider do these books because they are so australian like they like Mm. It's like you're actually in Melbourne. The, the, the sense of place is so strong. I'd never been to Melbourne. So, so, so how, I was so, really lost. Yeah. So how did that kind of translate for you? Well, it was like reading about a foreign country. Right. It was a foreign – I mean, it was yeah. kind of foreign to me at the time. And, of course, I think if you live in Australia, you live in the state. You don't live in the country. And I didn't realise that when I first came. Mm-hmm. I thought I lived in Australia. But, no, I lived in New South Wales. In fact, I lived in Sydney. So – it was very much a foreign country. Right. Um, and that was interesting, sometimes quite hard. Sometimes I find the language still quite hard to get. Actually, Broken Shore took me on a pilgrimage down the Great Ocean Road because, in fact, the setting is really Port Campbell. It's that bit of the Great Ocean Road. And, of course, living in Ballarat, that would be Temple's route down to the coast. And once you've seen that coastline, you know, it, it's it's absolutely unforgettable. Mm. But again, with that sense of place in The Broken Shore, there's that description of the of the quarter-acre blocks with these huge um, lorries, the big trucks sitting outside because you've got these truck drivers who go all over the country and have got their vans parked outside and this is how they earn their income. You mm. know, th- these are people who are living in a hard scrabble way in that mm. environment. And he captured that so beautifully, that sense of desolation. And that they thought they'd make good money, you know, that they, they survived, but they weren't flourishing. And just a sense of, of, of holding on. Holding on and holding on in these these places where, you know, the, 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 the rural towns, the regional towns are kind of struggling. And whenever he goes out of Melbourne, he gets that so brilliantly. Yeah, he really captures wherever he is. So in terms of regional crime, he's one of the forerunners of that. You know, now we have regional crime kind of all over the place. You know, Chris Hammer, The Dry, um, yeah. Jane Harper. Gary Disher. Gary Disher, who was mm. doing it too. And and Temple was there right there as well back then. I mean, if his writing reminds me of anybody's, which it doesn't, really, it's the closest person is Gary Disher. But Gary Disher's more 
gentle, I suppose, is the word I'd use. I mean, bad things happen, but he's more lyrical. Lyrical, yeah. He's more lyrical. He's 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 inclined. His prose is um, much more lyrical and much uh, much more prosy. Whereas as Temple's prose is telegraphic. Yeah, you know, he just does it in such sparse, you know, words and often changing the order of a sentence so that you get the back end first. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to talk about it without examples. But it's, yeah, I've it's, got a good one here. I think you got a good one. Well, it was the way that he has phrases without verbs. So this is the dogs kept chasing the hares in um, Broken Shore. After a while, they came back, pink of tongues visible from a long way, loped ahead again. Mm. So actually, there's a verb missing in inverted commas but of course there isn't that's what makes it so good but isn't that music i mean isn't what he's doing writing music so the way that he gets dialogue the australian vernacular so well you as michael said you can't do that unless you've got a musical ear and you can't write the sentence that uh, catherine just read out unless you're looking at the rhythm so it seems to me what he's got is the meter the meter of the dialogue the meter um, we were sort of um we're supposed to be talking about the red hand and um I think we probably should at least touch on it and sort of say, you know, what did everyone think of it? Because it's it's quite different, everything else being a collection, isn't it? Oh, I, very, I, very funny in parts. Yes. It's so funny, I fell off the sofa um, <laughs> reading his passage on on remembrance of books past. And his his love of books mm-hmm. is, is extraordinary. And the things that he's read, he was extraordinarily well read. But he, he's describing being in a tutorial um, at university, reading the works of G.W.F. Hegel, who he describes as not the Bryce Courtney of philosophers. <laughs> and there they are in their tutorial room on a high summer day, hot in a small room, fogged with cigarette smoke. Five of us, four tired students and the tutor, we fell asleep in our comfy chairs. Books in hand, we were reflecting on a particularly abstruse passage in the philosophy of right. Time passed, a bell sounded, but we were beyond the reach of bells. Somebody passing thought he'd come upon an academic suicide pact. (laughs) (laughs) I just love the irreverence that is in there, but also the fact that he kept that book. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was looking at the tradies wear sunnies and blunnies, um, which is a whole passage of of Australian English um, explanation. You know, buffed, person of no intelligence, low intelligence, fool, buffoon. I could have done with this when I came to <laughs> Australia. Um, you know, aggro from aggression or aggressive, all up in total, final sum. And some of it is probably not used much now. It's probably out of mm. date, but it's very funny. Uh, it's his glossary of Australian yeah, terms and, right. and the way in which he deploys those for, for the American authors. In fact, Shane Maloney did, had to do that right. too. Right. For when he when he was published in the in the United States, he had to kind of come up with a glossary or change the change the words. The language, yeah. Well, Dunny lavatory. Yes, <laughs> I what a Dunny was when I came here. No, I didn't know either. But his criticism is wonderful too. Yeah. And there's 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 a rev- he was reviewing a biography of Agatha Christie, and it's it's a beautifully written review. But the ending is just wonderful. Um, the the author of the uh, biography was a, somebody called Thompson. And he finishes it up by saying, Christie's was a long and productive life. Thompson makes it seem even longer. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he managed to be so rude and so he's, funny he's at the same time. He's very rude about Kathy Rikes too. Yes, he is. Yes, I won't say that all her books are this bad, but, you know. <laughs> 
I think actually following on from what Sue's just written yeah. or just read out, I I found in the red hand the the criticism, the book reviews yeah. were just fantastic yeah. because he is so honest. Mm. I mean, frighteningly honest and cutting and uh, funny. And the one apart from the, the one that Sue uh, read out about Agatha Christie. When he was talking about reading Raymond Chandler, and there's a book, it uh, was called The Chandler Papers, Selected Letters and Nonfiction. This is how he finishes the review. A final note in sadness that this book is worth buying owes little to anyone involved. The letters cry out for fuller annotation and the index to be kind is cursory. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful, beautiful cutting words. (laughs) That's a nice little cutting, uh, completely different, but cutting things. So it's at the in the in the red hand. It's a bit of fiction. I flew home on the four ten mercifully between meal times, spared the choice between two kinds of tasteless and soggy bottomed Qantas rolls. <laughs> <laughs> it's a soggy bottomed. You know, it's so evocative. Yes. Uh, look, the, sh- the the short fiction in here is wonderful too. Um, I w- was just delighted there is one story called crossroads which features four women driving to work in a factory and the exchange that they have in this car is if you want to know how he did language and again this is not about masculinity this is about angry women in a car it's superb and they get to work and they and they the factory gates are closed and these four women then decide that they're going to run away and it's just it could be the beginning for really something Louise, yeah. absolutely wonderful one only wishes that there was a sequel yeah mm. he's, there aren't as many there are more men i think i personally preferred his men they are and peter uh, peter uh, michael said something very interesting about about wounded masculinity and and groups of men he does write very good groups of men and the 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 i mean it's changing and it has changed but the unsaid so what is not said in the words that are actually exchanged in male conversation in male discourse is is interesting and he does that really well i think one of the characters through the jack irish that i particularly liked was the um the woodworker charlie torb the craftsman and the relationship that jack irish has with him and with wood and um, reading again, and in the unfinished Jack Irish, there's a glorious sequence where he he goes at a moment of frustration to work with the wood in the workshop. And that, that coming back to something, this history of the wood, the wood that was hung, that was changed, that was going to be perfect to make this thing, the craftsmanship within that. I actually wondered when when Michael was talking about if there was anybody that that Peter was like I thought maybe he's like the craftsman Charlie Torb in the oh. in the sense of that notion of being not saying very much withholding but but the attention to the detail the preparing the 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 care with which you prepare things is like the care with which he prepared his books or the care of observation but there's a property developer Smooth and tanned, Adrian Fife was going to get his development. And you could just see this bloke uh, with slightly over-moisturised skin and, and tanning salon. Just oh, fantastic. That's probably a good point to wrap this one up because um, we could clearly keep on talking for a long time yeah, about all of these novels. It just, they're so fantastic. And it's been such a, a great experience to kind of go back because it's rare to go back and reread 
authors that we like. like yeah, this. absolutely. I think it's worth saying, though, that The Red Hand has been shortlisted for a Crime Writers Association award. I think in the, in bio- the UK. Uh, yeah, in the yeah, UK. McCavity or something? So. It's been listed, um, and I think it's been listed in the, uh, it's obviously not in the fiction section, it's in the biography or the books about crime section. Mm. But it's, de- so it, it is an absolutely wonderful volume that's been recognised um, outside of Australia. And what you were saying about plot, sorry to barge in here, about plot not being what drives it. So many books, so many books now, it's all the plot, you know, it's all what's going to happen next and what's going to happen next and when's the baddie going to be gotten. And this is actually, so you, you get to the end, you need to get to the end. In the, these books, you enjoy the journey. And the, and the journey, so I ended up flat put, putting little stickers in all my books because the words were so lovely, so interesting, so in-depth, so worthwhile. I, I, I have to confess, I completely forget what the plot is the minute I've read a Peter <laughs> Temple because that was not the point. It wasn't the point. was not the point. Yeah. And yet it had me interested. And yet um, what was happening to Joe Cash and yeah. what was going on uh, really did propel me through uh, admiring the characters and the writing as I went. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. But it wasn't driven. It wasn't like, are we going to get to the end? You know, who did it? Although there was an element. I mean, there is always an element of that as well. What happens? What's going to happen? All right. Fantastic. Well, we've had a good chat today, haven't we? Um, I, I so thought we were going to get a bit of argy-bargy, but it didn't happen. <laughs> so uh, just remember, if you'd like to be a part of the Bad Sydney crime-loving community, then subscribe to our podcast, join the Bad Sydney Book Club page on Facebook and visit our website to keep up to date with all our news. We'd love for you to be a part of this Bad Sydney community. So join up, send us your thoughts and questions and become part of this uh, crime-loving group. And remember, in September, we have the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival with three exciting days of interviews, panels and events for all things crime. And so for more details, check out the website, www.badsydney.com. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back in a month with another new episode of Bad All About Crime, featuring a new book and a new crime author. Uh, We look forward to having your company then. And in the spirit of reconciliation, Bad All About Crime acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our Bad All About Crime book club. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia. You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. If you love listening to All About Crime, please give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime.